We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Among the bilateral relationships of the world's countries, none are as economically important as the United States and China. Hundreds of billions of dollars flow between the two nations. But in recent years, China has been strengthening its relationship with Russia, issuing a new joint statement declaring a friendship without limits in February. Russia's invasion of Ukraine soon after, however, has put Xi Jinping's government in an awkward position. Russia, its most important geopolitical ally, is now in an almost direct conflict with the U.S., its most important economic partner. We're talking about these three great powers. That's coming up next on Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. China has refused to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine despite requests from Western nations, and it has criticized sanctions against Russia. China-Russia cooperation has no limits, said a Chinese government spokesman, echoing a recent line both nations have used. But what will that cooperation look like as the war continues? Will it include Chinese military aid or assistance circumnavigating, circumventing sanctions? And how does the relationship between the country's leaders, a relationship believed to be close, impact policy? Here to help us get some answers to those questions, we're joined by Victor Xi, Chair in China and Pacific Relations at the University of California, San Diego. Welcome, Victor. Thanks for having me. As well as Patricia Kim, David M. Rubenstein Fellow at Brookings. Dr. Kim holds a joint appointment with the John L. Thornton China Center and the Center for East Asia Policy Studies. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Patricia, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov made a visit to Beijing this week. What happened with that visit and kind of what does it signal or tell us about the situation? Well, sure. Uh, So his visit to to Beijing was really about Afghanistan. China hosted a meeting uh, with a number of other country leaders. Uh, But in any case, what was very interesting to watch was on the sidelines of the meeting, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi kind of doubled down on the China-Russia strategic alignment, said that the two countries won't allow uh, you know, other issues, namely Ukraine, get in the way of the normal progression of their relationship. And so I think it's very been it's been very interesting to watch sort of how China has doubled down on this no limits partnership with Russia. I think many have been expecting Beijing to distance itself more publicly, but we haven't really seen that so mm-hmm. far. Victor Xi, the a Russian uh, spokesperson talked about creating a new democratic world order. I mean, who's the audience for calling the world order democratic? Uh, Well, this is also something that China uh, is proposing, uh, that there's a new definition of democracy called whole process democracy. 
Uh, what I gather from people in China is that this, of course, is not meant uh, for the advanced democracies of the world. I mean, they know that the US and Japan and Europe will not agree with this definition of democracy, but, th but they think that um, their definition of democracy, which you know involves a strong hand by the central government, uh, may be attractive to some developing countries. Huh. So not necessarily elections, but participation by the citizens in the governance of the country in, in some way. Yeah, so some notion of responsiveness. Uh, so if there's a popular demand for a certain kind of policy, then the government, even though there's no electoral process or fair elections in these countries, uh, the leadership would uh, respond to the demands of the people, or at least so goes the, the claim of process democracy. Yeah. Patricia Kim, I mean, is it possible to say categorically that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is good or bad for China? Well, you know, I don't think the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was ultimately in China's interests. Um, I don't think, I think right now, Ch Chinese leaders are, are under a lot of stress. Um, they're dealing with the pandemic at home, the economic repercussions of their strict uh, zero tolerance COVID policy and so on. And so they're, they're, they're under a lot of stress. Uh, Xi Jinping also is looking to secure an unprecedented third term in office. He's likely to get it at the end of the year at the at the uh, fall 20th Party Congress. But nevertheless, he really needs a smooth ride uh, to seal the deal. And so I don't think um, having a big war break out and um, having the world sort of scrutinize China and ask, did you green light the Russian invasion and so on, having this kind of pressure on it is, is in China's interests. Um, also, you know, while China and Russia share many of the same grievances, including, you know, we just talked about their definitions of democracy, and they both partnered up to say that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to democracy. This is in the China-Russia joint statement, and that's like sort of a, a, a place of agreement for them and, and this grievance against the West. Um, having said that, there are also clear divergent interests as well, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine has shown this. Um, China very much depends on good ties with developed countries in Europe or key Asian capitals uh, with the United States to continue to grow its economy. And so um, this invasion has really sort of uh, sh shaken up those ties. And so in that sense, the war is not in China's ultimate interests. Yeah. You know, Victor, I want to step back a little bit on the situation in China right now and how it may be shaping the way that the Chinese Communist Party is kind of managing this this situation. What are Chinese leaders really thinking about here in 2022? I mean, they, they were not thinking about Ukraine. I mean, this I, from from everything I think we've seen, this was not something that they were like, you know, intimately involved with. So what are they really thinking about in their domestically in 2022? Well, um, actually, there are some signs that you know perhaps they they knew <laughs> something was going to happen. Uh, I think the duration uh, of the campaign in Ukraine and Russian losses uh, were unexpected by you know probably both by Putin and by Xi Jinping. Uh, but for example, there are some signs that uh, Russia moved forty billion dollars of its foreign exchange reserve to China uh, late last year. You know mm -hmm. why, why did they do that? Um, so, uh, but I think. 
I, I don't quite agree that it's totally not in the interest of China for the conflict in Ukraine to happen. Of course, ideally for Xi Jinping and for especially for Putin, a quick campaign where the Ukrainian government suddenly will become pro-Russia would have been ideal. Uh, but even in this situation, uh, recently we've seen some commentaries from Chinese think tanks saying that, well, you know, if this becomes kind of a long drawn out campaign in Ukraine, at least the United States attention is not going to be so much on China and what China is doing in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, at least the US focus is gonna be on Europe uh, and that could provide um, some space for China to expand its influence uh, in Asia. Hmm. So, so I think uh, at least uh, some strategic thinkers in China sees this benefit of uh, the Ukraine conflict. You know, the other thing I wanted to ask you, I, I know a big area of your study. Uh, well, actually, let's let's get Patricia's uh, take on that, uh, on whether the uh, a longer drawn out war could be very bad for China. Go ahead, Patricia. Uh, sure. So I, I think, you know, I... I have seen those articles that Victor has mentioned. I think there was sort of some um, rosy eyed views perhaps of how this might play out in China's favor, but I don't think it's really panning out that way. And I think um, the war in Ukraine has actually sparked a lot of conversations in Washington, in Europe, and in Asia about will there be a parallel situation in Taiwan, in the Taiwan Strait? And I think this has kickstarted a lot of conversations about how to ensure that we don't see something similar happen in the Asian region. And so in that sense, I don't think it has um, turned out well for Chinese leaders. Also, this uh, the fact that there was sort of this instant global unity and outrage vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis Russia's invasion of Ukraine and this unprecedented sanctions regime that was put together by the United States and its allies, it serves as a case in point that if China were to engage in a similar unprovoked attack vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, it could see um, you know, similar consequences. So I, I, I think um, I can see how there's a sense that this could have kept the U.S. bogged down in Europe. But if you look at the national defense strategy, the, the, the public version has, been, has not been released yet, but the the classified one has, and there was a press release. And if you look there, there hasn't really been a reordering of US priorities. The number one threat still identified uh, in that document is China. So the US government hasn't, there hasn't been sort of a wholesale reorienting of sort of the, the which country is seen as the pacing challenge. It is still very much China. Victor, um, you know, it's inevitable that we're gonna compare Ukraine and Russia Taiwan and China. Do you think that comparison makes sense or like actually sheds light on on the state of affairs? Uh, you know, of course, the geography uh, in these two areas are quite different, uh, Taiwan being an island. Um, but but I think that uh, to the extent that what happened in Ukraine shows that, you know, if you want to conquer a sizable territory, you have to just devote a lot of resources into it uh, instead of you know hoping for a quick sort of decapitation uh, strike, um, I, th I think that is uh, a lesson that's being shared widely uh, across the board. You know, um, you know both by China and also by Taiwan, um, and I think China now realizes that if it wants to invade Taiwan, it's not going to be something that they can really hide from the rest of the world because it's going to take months and months of preparation. 
as they move hundreds of thousands of troops uh, along the coast uh, in Fujian and Zhejiang province in preparation for an invasion. Uh, so, so I think there are some lessons, uh, although the geography, uh, of course, is quite different uh, and therefore the tactics and the weapon systems that will be used uh, if it comes to pass, and I hope, I hope that it never comes to pass, um, you know, will, will also be quite different. Yeah. Patricia, on the U.S. side, have you seen anything different in the U.S.'s approach to Taiwan foreign policy? Um, so I guess, you know, there it, it's too early to say what the definitive takeaways and implications of what's going on in Ukraine will be for Taiwan, for China, and so on. Um, but it's very interesting. I've seen um, sort of what's going on being used to support a, a number of angles on Taiwan. And I think some have made the case that the United States' unwillingness to send US, U.S. troops to Ukraine or to help with air cover because it's not a treaty ally has set a bad precedent and made clear that unless you have an official alliance with the United States, then it won't come to um, to to it, your assistance. And so I've seen this argument advanced by a range of voices, including uh, certain U.S political leaders or analysts who want to make the case that this is precisely why the U.S. should drop its policy of strategic ambiguity hmm. and express a commitment to defend Taiwan. But, you know, I, I would say that the there are parallels, but the two cases are very different. And of course, the U.S. has, has always expressed a strong commitment to Taipei for decades. So the, the cases are a bit different. We're talking about how the war in Ukraine is impacting the relationship between China and Russia and the U.S. with Patricia Kim, David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution, as well as Victor Xi, Chair in China and Pacific Relations at the University of California, San Diego. We'd love to get your questions about foreign policy in Russia and China. The number is 866-733-6786. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how the war in Ukraine is kind of resetting the relationships between China, Russia, and the U.S., or at least could, with Patricia Kim, David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution, and Victor Xi, Chair in China and Pacific Relations at the University of California, San Diego. Again, we'd love to hear from you what your questions about the foreign policies of Russia and China are and their relationship to one another, and how the U.S. should be approaching China with regard to the war in Ukraine the number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Of course, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email address is forum at kqed.org. 
You know, Victor, I wanted to, before we talk about the personal relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, I wanted to get into a little bit of your research on the Chinese political elite. You know, has the Chinese political elite fully sort of consolidated behind, you know, the premier or does he still kind of have to look over his shoulder as he navigates both this and these pretty intense COVID problems? Uh, I think over the first uh, 10 years of his rule, Xi Jinping has indeed managed to consolidate almost complete control of the entire elite. Uh, the only uh, body that still has some influence from the other factions in the party is at the highest level, the Politburo Standing Committee. Uh, there are still um, sort of three, three officials who are not in his factions. Uh, but they are all potentially on the cusp of retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, by the informal rules that, you know, if you're 67, you don't have to retire. Um, they should still be able to stay, or at least two of the three. Uh, but uh, Xi Jinping, of course, being so powerful, he can change the rules. Below that, at the Politburo level, it's almost completely dominated by Xi Jinping followers. Um, I expect that to be even more so the case uh, at the 20th Party Congress this fall. Uh, and of course, the important provincial uh, officials, they also are all Xi Jinping followers. And of course, after the reform of the military uh, in 2016, um, Xi Jinping also was able to assert a pretty complete control over the military. Just want to note a lot of your research is into these kind of the social networks of the factions of the different uh, pieces of the Chinese Communist Party. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, Patricia... Now let's talk a little bit about the relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. I mean, how have analysts really understood the relationship between these two really individually extremely powerful men? Well, sure. Um, I think Xi Jinping has clearly invested uh, in a deep personal relationship with Putin. Uh, the two leaders have met over dozens of times. And I think the fact uh, why China has been under such extreme pressure for looking as if it green-lighted Russia's invasion is because it decided on February 4th, 20 days before the invasion, to uh, host uh, Putin uh, for Xi Jinping's first in-person summit in two years or something like that with a foreign leader at the opening of the Olympics. So it really gave this prominent uh, spotlight to Putin. And they, of course, released the China-Russia strategic uh, joint statement at that time as well. And so there's a lot of uh, that Xi Jinping and Putin have really invested a lot in their personal relationship. And I think this is a big factor in why China hasn't distanced itself from Russia uh, despite the costs the reputational cost that it's paying now for our staying sort of sympathetic to Russia, despite what it's doing in Ukraine. I mean, I guess I have to ask, what are those reputational costs actually doing to China? Like, are, are those real or do they, you know? Um, absolutely. I mean, they do matter. So, uh, for instance, China and the EU are having a summit uh, tomorrow. And I think the fact that China hasn't clearly condemned uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, does not sit well in the in Europe. It has really damaged China's image among European leaders. And this is, um, you know, Europe, the EU is one of China's largest 
trade partners. It's a it's an area of the world that has tried to cultivate as it looked at strategic competition with the United States. Um, but the relationship hasn't been going well. I mean, it's been stalling over disagreements about human rights and values and so on. And so I think uh, China's image very much matters. Um, and it does lead to real costs, like being unable to move forward with an investment pact, for instance, that was in the work for um, for multiple years and, and so on. So there are real costs. Yeah. Now, Victor, what do you think the Russian and Chinese governments share at sort of a, a deeper level, aside from, you know, a distaste for American hegemony? <laughs> what Where else do they have really practical alignments or agreement? So I, I would actually say that the stays for American hegemony uh, has a deeper meaning than what we typically think of. You know, it's like, haha, you know, it's kind of a funny thing to think of. Uh, but in fact, both Putin and Xi Jinping uh, weirdly have this uh, nostalgia for the Soviet Union. Uh, for Putin, it's very obvious, you know, he was in the KGB. For Xi Jinping, he grew up at a time when the Soviet was a very mighty uh, empire and the older brother in socialism to China. And he has said a number of times that, you know, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union was not necessary. It was due to internal weakness and uh, hostile plots from the West. Uh, And so I think both share this deep commitment to make sure that uh, these two dynamics, you know, internal weakness and hostile plots from the West, do not take hold uh, in Russia and in China, respectively. So I think this is one of the reasons why China continued to be even publicly support Russia. Um, you know, privately, the, the level of support probably is much greater than what we can even see uh, in public. Mm-hmm. What do we think the Russian government fears about its relationship with China, Patricia? Oh, well, I think many have pointed out that as Russia is uh, isolated from the world, as it faces sanctions from a number of countries, that um, it really has increasingly nowhere to turn to but China. And so, of course, you know, there may be concerns about Russia too growing too dependent on China. Of course, while these countries have declared a no-limits partnership uh, in recent years, if you just go back a few decades into the second half of the Cold War, they were actually each other's biggest rivals. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're two great powers, they're two nuclear powers, they share a border, there have been, um, you know, there's past precedent for rivalry. And so I'm sure uh, Russians are not only looking to the Chinese to sort of uh, ease their isolation and to backfill them as, as, they, as the conflict continues on in Ukraine, but at the same time, I'm sure they're also worried, are we growing too dependent on our neighbor? Yeah. We're talking about how the war in Ukraine is affecting the relationship between China, Russia, and the U.S. with Patricia Kim, David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Kim also holds a joint appointment with the John L. Thornton China Center and the Center for East Asia Policy Studies. And we are also joined by Victor Shi, Chair in China and Pacific Relations at the University of California, San Diego. Love to hear from you. Has your view of China changed as a result of its response to the war in Ukraine? And what are your concerns or questions about American foreign policy when it comes to China? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Let's get to our first call here. Uh, Robert in Berkeley, welcome to the show. 
Yes, hi. Um, I'm curious about the U.S. strategic interests. We've been talking, and I understand there's curiosity about what China's thinking, but what about our interests? Uh, China isn't even using the art of war of keeping your enemies closer uh, anymore. They, they've taken the gloves off and said that they want you know, to appropriate Taiwan. They've already done this with Hong Kong, and we've turned a blind eye to that. Um, and then U.S. companies doing business over there. I have a friend who sourced products uh, in China, and he was told by his company that if you saw a military uniform in the factory, meaning the factory was military-owned, to turn a blind eye. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes with a totalitarian uh, government that we're doing business with that Americans don't know about. Yeah, so I'd like yeah. your guest comments. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that, Robert. And of course, we do a tremendous amount of business, <laughs> you know, more than half a trillion dollars worth. Uh, Victor Shi, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think the the money is a key here. Uh, China is has behaved uh, more aggressively in recent years because it knows that the manufacturing base in China plays such a crucial role in the global production chain that um, really countries like the United States or advanced uh, countries in Europe can't really afford to stop trading with China. And the reason why um, you know people in the US and in Europe buy from China is because they produce the lowest costs um, final goods or intermediate components that companies in the U.S. would use to put into their final products. Uh, and the quality of these uh, final goods and intermediate components have uh, has in improved you know, over the years. Um, and so if you want to make the, the highest profit, you would buy from China. It, it's as simple as that. And despite the tariffs and, and uh, trade restrictions that <clears throat> Donald Trump uh, imposed, that continues to be the case on a large number of products. Um, U.S. import from China continues to be at historically high levels, especially um, once the pandemic uh, interrupted the supply chains in the U.S. So that's that's something that's really hard for policymakers in, in Washington to think about, because uh, whatever kind of trade sanctions we impose on China, there will be um, real costs on American businesses. Yeah, I mean, I always think about Apple, of course, right? A California company, but most of the people, the vast majority of people working on Apple products are actually uh, working in China, uh, not with an Apple badge, you know? And it's it just speaks to the the deep, deep relationship that we have, you know, particularly, you know, here on the West Coast and the way that our uh, the, the tech economy works. Or you think about Amazon and where its products come from that largely are sold on on Amazon. It's it's a tough one. Patricia, what do you think? I mean, do you think that there could be what I guess people have called strategic decoupling from uh, the Chinese you know, manufacturing base? Or is that just sort of we need another solution? Sure. So uh, Victor talked about sort of the deep interdependence that our two economies have. I think um, the as China watches sort of the global sanctions regime on Russia and many Chinese elites are watching too. I think they've been uh, they've realized, wow, uh, you know, this could happen to us as well if there were to be a standoff over Taiwan. And so I think this has added fuel to 
China's efforts to de-risk its own supply chains, to reduce its reliance on the West for high-tech components and its overall vulnerability to Western sanctions as it looks towards uh, long-term strategic competition with the U.S. Um, and, and I just wanted to make one other note. There was a lot of interesting points to pick up on the question that was asked. And one, and and part of that was sort of, what is this doing to US policy vis-a-vis -vis China? And I think it's important to state just how much uh, China's decision to, to host Putin, to, to talk about its no limit partnership with Russia at this point has really impacted conversations about mm. the nature of the threat that's posed by China here in DC, as well as capitals in Europe and, and Asia and elsewhere. And I think over the years, there's been a considerable narrowing of perceptions of China, uh, especially here in Washington. And there's always there's been a range of views from those who see US competition with China in very existential terms on one extreme, to those who would say, uh, you know, this competition could be more sportsman-like and we can compete in sort of the tech and econ realms. And of course, we have to militarily deter each other, but we can and, and must ultimately work together on global challenges for the good of the world. And I think China's actions or inactions in Ukraine have thrown a doubt on the notion that we can indeed work together on regional hotspots like North Korea or Iran. Let's bring in another caller, Hosh from Irvine. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Um, uh, awesome topic. I right when the war started in in uh, in Ukraine with Russia, the first question that came to my mind was China and Taiwan. And it's interesting you guys are talking about the exact same thing that I wanted to add questions about. So some of the questions have been answered, but from a strategic standpoint, proactively. What can the United States government do that we're not in the same predicament as we are today, where gas prices are high? It's not going to be the same thing with China when you put sanctions against China. It's just not. And so proactively, from an economic standpoint, you know, financial, uh, keeping war, you know, far, far into the site, you know, what can the government really do proactively? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, let's, let's start first with you, Patricia, and then we'll come to you, Victor. Thanks. Um, so what can the U.S. do? I think, uh, first of all, there's been a lot of effort uh, in recent years to work with allies and partners to secure supply chains to make sure that we have alternatives um, so that if there are disruptions or if we have to use sanctions that um, that we can really uh, protect our economy, protect our supply chains. Although, you know, as we've seen uh, yeah. over the last two years, how difficult. <laughs> I think there are uh, real limits to, to that as a strategy myself. But yeah. It's Exactly. Right. But, um, you know, looking for alternatives, working to transition to different, you know, clean energy and so on. And so, you know, there are multiple ways can get at this. Of course, with Taiwan, there's been um, a lot of talk about how can Taiwan secure itself and how can the U.S. help Taiwan secure itself. And I think the how the Ukrainians have been able to resist the Russians, despite uh, Russia's extreme military superiority vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine has been an inspiring case, and it has also sparked conversations in Taiwan about how do we make sure that our own civilians, our own conscripts are better prepared. And I think those are areas where the U.S. can work together uh, with Taiwan and allies as well. And as I mentioned at the, at the, uh, earlier in the conversation, I think um, a lot of U.S. allies in Asia are also 
more seriously thinking about how do they contribute to peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Now, having said that, um, we always want to be very careful as well. I think the U.S. has tried very hard over the last few decades to ensure that steps that we take um, do not endanger Taiwan, but rather strengthen it. And so when we're talking about, you know, can, will, should we uh, make our strategic commitment to Taiwan, you know, less ambiguous or, or so on, you really have to think through the consequences. And so it's an area where you need to have careful and nuanced thinking. Victor, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree with what uh, Patricia is saying. Um, basically, uh, the U.S. has to walk a fine line between deterrence, uh, and certainly we can uh, increase the level of deterrence by providing uh, additional weapon systems and capacities to Taiwan, but also at the same time not, um, you know, triggering China's uh, overreaction uh, with, uh, you know, diplomatic recognition or, or something like that. Uh, that's, first of all, not very necessary um, and um, could draw an overreaction mm -hmm. to China. Uh, the reason is because the day that an actual invasion happens, uh, you know, from mainland China to Taiwan, 40% uh, of the world's semiconductor uh, production is going to go offline. And economic consequences of that, uh, and also, you know, on, on the stock market and so on and so forth. So, you know, really, that is a situation that needs to be avoided, uh, yeah. you know, as much as possible. You know, I was reading on People's Daily, just to get a sense of the Chinese perspective, at least as it was being put out in that paper. And they, there's a lot of quoting of Henry Kissinger saying, to be an enemy of the U.S. is dangerous, but to be a friend can be lethal. Um, we're talking about the war in Ukraine, how it's affecting the relationship between China, Russia, and the U.S. with Victor Xi, Chair in China and Pacific Relations at UCSD, and Patricia Kim, David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution. We'd love to hear from you. What are your questions about how these relationships are being reshaped between these great powers? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how the war in Ukraine is reshaping the relationships between China, Russia, and the U.S. with Patricia Kim, David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution, and Victor Shi, Chair in China and Pacific Relations at UCSD. You want to get to some of the comments that are coming in from our listeners. Uh, first one from Kirsten. Kirsten writes, uh, China has always held to a no interference in internal matters policy and has sought to influence nations through trade and infrastructure, quote unquote, gifts. How can it side with Russia, given it is not possible to hide its interference in a sovereign nation? Patricia? That's a great question. And I think um, that's an area where China, Beijing, has really been struggling with its messaging. So it has said clearly that it um, it believes in territorial integrity and state sovereignty. Um, but at the same time, it has been sympathetic to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so I think, um, you know, China's the reason why China has supported Russia so much is because it's saying that it's really the United States hegemonic intentions, uh, NATO's encircling of Russia that really drove Russia to a corner and made it lash out. And I think it's been amplifying this message because it wants to say that there's a parallel situation going on in Asia where uh, China feels as if the US-led alliance networks there, uh, the variety of minilateral groupings that we've seen over the over the last few years, especially like the, the growth of the Quad, the partnership between the US, India, um, Japan, and Australia, and this new trilateral security pact between the US, Australia, and UK, and so on, China is basically saying, look, you're encircling us just as Russia was encircled by NATO. And so don't let this happen in Asia. I think that's sort of one big message that China wants mm. us to send. Uh, but at the same time, it also says that it is a defender of territorial integrity. And it's very interesting. Chinese leaders make the point that the US and Europe should not have double standards when it comes to Taiwan, because they say that Taiwan is a sovereign part of China. And so if they are saying that Ukraine's uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity shouldn't be violated and that China should stand for it, then then everyone should do the same on Taiwan as well when it comes to China's claims. Yeah. You know, Victor, do we know how China is presenting the war in Ukraine internally and whether these kinds of things that to us may seem like hypocrisies or, or that poke holes in kind of some of the rhetoric of the government, whether that's really getting through to people in the way that the media is presenting what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, so it's very interesting. Uh, internally, you see this divergence uh, of coverage almost. Um, so, you know, if you read the editorials, uh, the commentaries, um, they're, of course, very supportive of Russia. And as uh, Patricia pointed out, you know, spinning this whole story about how, you know, oh, it's all because of NATO encroachment and for the strategic self-interest of Russia, it had to sort of invade Ukraine. Uh, incidentally, this, of course, was the argument of Japan as it, um, you know, invaded Asia uh, in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, but um, if you look at coverage of the war itself, uh, it, uh, the Chinese media have not shied away from some of the heavier uh, casualty figures. Mm. So, you know, I've seen a, at least a couple of um, state media covering uh, the war in Ukraine, citing Ukrainian sources on casualties, which of course we know to be much, much higher than the official Russian uh, casualty reports. 
And then privately, um, you know, in the WeChat groups that, that I'm in uh, with, you know, economists in China and academics in China, there, there has been a very lively discussion on, on the war in Ukraine and people are paying attention, uh, at least among the intelligentsia. Uh, they are critical of Russia, some of them. Some of them are, you know, buying to the story of a NATO plot, uh, but others are very critical. So, so I think the Chinese government is not uh, censoring 100% uh, all the news and discussion on Ukraine by any means. Yeah. You know, Patricia, want to look forward a little bit here. I mean, what happens if China steps up, steps up its support for Russia in some way with arms or you know, uh, semiconductor exports, you know, parts that can be used for weapons. Like what happens then? So China has already come out to say that it disagrees with sanctions. It doesn't feel like, uh, well, it disagrees on principles, feels that unilateral sanctions are illegal and um, that sanctions in general will not help the situation, that it'll continue to have normal economic relations with Russia. So it's already made that point very clear. Um, but there also isn't evidence that um, Chinese companies or banks are really going out there to, to help Russia evade sanctions. I think they're very much worried about their own economic bottom line. So there's been sort of um, they've been trying to be very careful to avoid secondary sanctions on themselves. Uh, also, uh, the Chinese ambassador came out on Face the Nation, I think it was last Sunday, uh, to state uh, it was a very combative interview, but in it, he also said that China will not provide weapons or ammunition to any party in, in the conflict. And so I think this is a point that the, uh, the Biden administration has been uh, trying to make to the Chinese that if they provide any sort of material support to Russia, especially um, military support that they should not expect to go uh, scot-free. And I think I think this message has sunk in. I don't think China has intentions to provide weapons, but of course we'll have to watch closely and see that it, it actually lives up to its words. Yeah. Let's bring in a couple more callers uh, sticking with the China and Taiwan. Mike from San Ramon, welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, I had a question. What is the possibility or the chances of Taiwan and China creating a treaty to where, you know, they could have a limited partnership that would make China happy, um, but that would, you know, keep Taiwan free and something that would prevent China from needing to ever invade Taiwan, but, you know, somehow blending the, the two countries together somehow in such a way that you know, China wouldn't feel the need to invade and then Taiwan could maintain some type of independence, but but still, you know, could say they become part of China again and, and keep everybody happy. What, what are the possibility or chances yeah. of that happening? I'd like the experts to weigh in on that. Sure. Uh, Victor, what do you think? I, I think there's almost no chance of that. Um, if you look at the survey data, um, you know, something like 90 percent of the population in Taiwan uh, considers Taiwan its own country. Uh, they don't have a strong identity uh, with China. Um, so, you know, electorally, it just becomes very difficult uh, for either the party, the KMT, or certainly not the DPP, to uh, sign such a treaty, you know, a new sort of consensus. Uh, there, there was this kind of a consensus back in the 90s. I, I think uh, signing a new consensus would be electoral suicide for either party. So I really don't expect that to be mm. possible. Patricia, I assume on the 
uh, Chinese side, it would also be massively un- unpopular as well as just sort of contravening a long-standing belief of the party. Uh, well, so I think, you know, Beijing's intentions uh, ha- was has been to bring in Taiwan under what it calls the one country, two systems. So uh, Taiwan could sort of preserve its own uh, political system as long as it accepts Beijing as its ultimate authority. Of course, this concept has lost all credibility, though, as people watched China sort of trample this notion in Hong Kong. And, um, you know, it, they did not allow... Uh, the people of Hong Kong to really sort of preserve their democratic traditions. And so in that sense, I think uh, that ship has sailed, um, at least for now. I mean, I, I wouldn't rule out, you know, something like this, perhaps in, in, in a long distant future, perhaps if there is a different political uh, system in the mainland of China, um, you know, it, it, it is, it, you, you can't rule it out as a possibility, but I think in the short term, as Victor said, there's, you know, very little desire on the Taiwanese side to integrate into China, at least uh, into the current system that it exists. You know, I want to ask a slightly different question. You know, I mean, a lot of the real power of the United States, you know, lies not just in the military, but in the dominance of our currency in the global financial system. The IMF came out this week saying they thought the sanctions may weaken dollar dominance in that global financial system. Um, Victor, what do you think? Is Are there possibilities that there could be more trade done that's denominated in Chinese currency? Uh, yeah, to be sure, on the margin, that's going to have an impact, uh, especially in terms of uh, uh, trade of physical goods. Uh, so it's, you know, all of a certain that Russia will have to shift a lot of its import, uh, especially for manufactured goods, uh, machine parts and electronics to Chinese made goods. And China, of course, can then say, oh, you know, you can pay for this in renminbi instead of US dollars. Um, so, so that, of course, will increase the usage of renminbi. But for the renminbi, the problem is that uh, the Chinese government continues to be very paranoid about having the renminbi being widely circulated around the world. And the reason for that is because um, once you have liquidity outside of China's border, then um, sort of hedge funds around the world can start uh, speculating on your currency. And the Chinese government really doesn't want to do that. Uh, on top of that, uh, even if you give Russian oligarchs you know, billions and billions in Chinese renminbi, uh, many of them still want to buy things uh, in Europe uh, and even in North America. They don't want to buy villas in uh, China. Uh, some of them, they do own villas in Hainan uh, Island, but uh, they still prefer Europe, uh, Western Europe uh, to China. So as long as that is the case, um, even if you give them billions in renminbi, they will still try to convert that into dollars or euro. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such an interesting situation because it's sort of one of those forms of power that Americans don't really you know, think about that often because, of course, the dollars are just sort of our, our everyday uh, currency. Uh, Patricia Kim, I wanted to ask you, a couple listeners have written in with these uh, different uh, ideological comments. Uh, one listener writes, isn't the Russian-Chinese relationship based in part on their desire to propagate and legitimize totalitarian regimes and to keep democracy from spreading? I believe Ukraine is a major threat to Russia's existence, but it's an ideological threat not a military one. And Barbara asked, why do these governments group themselves as communist countries? They're not Marxist. Why are they aligned? 
Uh, well, there is definitely sort of an ideological camaraderie that is motivating the China-Russia strategic relationship. And again, if you look at the joint statement that was released on February 4th, you see a lot of this spelled out in that extraordinary document where the two countries state, you know, there is no one size fits uh, all model of democracy, that we are democracies as well. And Victor talked about this earlier in the hour um, that the West should not have, uh, you know, their own, they should not impose their own ideas of democracies on other countries. And so there's very much sort of this ideological uh, camaraderie that is that is driving this partnership. Um, and, you know, I, I think it, having said that, um, I don't think that it's in the United States or anyone's interest really to frame this too much in terms of sort of a battle between democracies and autocracies, uh, because it's, I think it's very dangerous if we end up with a world where we have sort of this crystallized division of autocracies on one side and democracies on the other, then I think we can only go towards zero sum conflict. And so at this point, um, what I think US leaders and other uh, European leaders and so on should be doing is reaching out to China and Russia and saying, hey, look, you should, you have, uh, it's in your interest to deal with us separately uh, rather than to deal with this jointly and try not to paint this into sort of an existential conflict because we don't want to go there. Yeah. You know, Victor, how much leverage do we think the U.S. has on China in trying to get them to at least kind of stay safely on the sidelines? Yeah, no, I, I think we, uh, at least up to this point, um, we are seeing quite a bit of leverage. Uh, you know, uh, the flip side of uh, us importing uh, so much goods from China is that uh, China is receiving so much payment from the United States. And so if the U.S.-China trade were to be disrupted, um, you know, Chinese companies would lose uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in sales. Uh, so I think that um, is you know, working in terms of, uh, you know, keeping Chinese government to, even if they were to aid Russia militarily, it would have to do it on a very small scale uh, in a very hidden way. What's really interesting is that, um, actually, I think a lot of uh, the outcome depends on what happens on the battlefields of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Imagine if uh, Russia were to suffer uh, major losses or even catastrophic losses, um, you know, the worst possible outcome for China is for Putin to lose power so then uh, China may be compelled to help Russia militarily in a more sort of public fashion. And that will, um, you know, draw the ire of the United States and potentially see some uh, U.S. sanctions on Russia. So I think this is why, I mean, while China, I think, is um, generally OK with uh, kind of a low intensity conflict in Ukraine, it really doesn't want things to escalate too much in Ukraine because it, uh, China realizes that uh, it can be dragged into this whole thing uh, sort of unwittingly. Yeah. Patricia, if you agree that Putin falling and a pro-Western, pro-democracy leader going in place in Russia would be the worst case scenario for, for China, what would the best case scenario out of this conflict be for, for China? 
Uh, I think China probably wants a quick resolution to the war in Ukraine in which China plays some kind of mediating role, perhaps serving as a convening force. And this allows it to recover some of the damage that's been done to the to its international image. And then China also can swoop in uh, to offer assistance with the rebuilding of Ukraine through its Belt and Road Initiative, um, and also to have NATO and Europe acknowledge in some fashion that it cornered Russia which led to this crisis and extending uh, and and um, to extend security concessions to Russia so that China could point to this precedent to make the case that the U.S. and its allies should consider the same in Asia before we see conflict. I think that's the sort of scenario that might perhaps be an ideal one um, from Beijing's point of view. Yeah. You know, last uh, listener comment, Victor, which I may throw to you. I mean, how did our political leaders allow us to get into the situation with China? They've undercut our labor force, weakened our unions, and flooded us with inferior products, although they are getting better. <laughs> and we've allowed it. What about the human rights situation? Premium prices are paid for Apple products, yet we have no problem with them being made in China. I think we've shot ourselves in the foot. Looking out over the next couple decades, uh, Dr. Xi, do you think there's a possibility that the U.S. begins to reshore some of the manufacturing or move it to other, other countries uh, in the long term? Uh, yeah, so how do we get here? I mean, it's just money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> wages in, in China uh, have been a lot lower uh, than in the United States or even in uh, Central and South America. That is no longer the case. The wages in Central and South America is now cheaper than in China. Uh, but nonetheless, un unlike many developing countries, China has world-class infrastructure. They've invested a lot of money into the electricity grid, uh, the railroad system, ports, et cetera. Um, so that makes logistics uh, a lot cheaper in China than in um, de other developing countries. Going forward, you know, I think, uh, again, I think a lot of this is private sector action that's motivated um, on the margin by government policies. Of course, with the tariff, with growing tension, uh, companies themselves will want to diversify their uh, production chain, uh, not just, U.S. companies, but also European and Japanese companies. But the low cost production continues to be. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a fine balancing act between the two. Yeah, we've been talking about the relationship between China, Russia, and the U.S. with Victor Xi. Dr. Xi is chair in China and Pacific relations at the University of California, San Diego. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Patricia Kim is the David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution and also holds a joint appointment. Uh, with the John L. Thornton China Center and the Center for East Asia Policy Studies. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Kim. Thank you. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with guest host Rachel Myro. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.